from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how ESG ratings are created and what they really mean, a new form of debt financing for underrepresented climate tech entrepreneurs, and what the circular economy looks like on the other side of the pond. We're feeling loopy this week on 350. It's May 13th, 2022, Friday the 13th. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, always feeling lucky, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. I hope I'm feeling lucky. I I got a big contest this weekend with my quartet and... um, so yeah, feeling lucky. <laughs> yeah, this is this is your acapella quartet. That My you've acapella been quartet. Doing yep. for years and years for those years and uh, years and years listeners who haven't yet uh, tuned into that. Um, mm-hmm. and what's the event? The, the competition. It is the first regional competition that this region of Sweet Adelines has had in three years. Um, yeah, it's they have they have series of competitions each year, sort of regional or district ones, and then the winners of those go to. The international competition i uh, yeah so I'll, I'll look forward to the uh, video of that i assume there'll be one um uh, it's always fun to watch you doing your other thing or one of your other <laughs> things um but speaking of other things we have a, a big thing coming up next week in yep. atlanta georgia circularity 22 um i'm looking forward to it it's you know another one where the the numbers are we're blowing the numbers out of the water because people want to be together so it's going to be a great great group i think we've got close to a thousand people coming uh, or we'll have by the time we get to next tuesday um, what, what are you doing at the event? What's your uh, uh, agenda there? Yeah, well, I kind of teed us up last episode a little bit with that, but I have a number of sessions, but I'm also planning to meet with um, some 30 under 30 folks. Hello, folks. Can't wait to see you. Um, and um, just going to be spending time talking. I mean, that's that's what I've really kind of, as we come back to these events in person and, and I have a chance to be in the community, just, I really, honestly, I'm just going to be spending a lot of time talking to people and asking what they need, what they need from us, from, from an editorial standpoint, what would they want to know more about, just trying to get more um, responsive in terms of, you know, what the community really wants in terms of news and analysis. So I'm, I'm just looking forward to mingling and asking questions and listening. What about you? What's up for you? Uh, similar. I've got a couple of main stage interviews or panels that I'm leading. Uh, one uh, on collaborating toward circularity with uh, the CSOs of Starbucks and Target and the Closed Loop Fund. And another one called, I'm really looking forward to, called Tried, Failed, Learned. You know, people love to get up on stage and talk about all the things they're doing right. And we love to hear about those success stories too. But it's much harder and braver to say, you know, we tried this and it didn't work, but through that, we were able to find this other thing, which kind of did. So uh, we'll have uh, Jeff Hogue, the CSO of Levi Strauss, and Marissa McGowan from uh, L'Oreal, and Jane Abernethy from Human Scale. So uh, yeah, some great events. And then like you, just seeing everybody and, you know, I went through the list (laughs) 
of, of people who are coming in, I only know about 10% of them, which is fabulous. That means, you know, it's a whole new audience that we're bringing to these events. It's uh, so exciting. And, and people who are really, really in the weeds of uh, supply chain and product design and uh, second lives of, of products and, and, and everything that's involved with the circular economy. So it's going to be a great week next week. But it was a great week this week, and let's revisit it in the Week in Review. I'll get us started this week. And Joel, you had a great week. This is a, this is a week that I love because my colleague, Mr. McCower, wrote not one, but two <laughs> major features this week. And he's got another one in the can coming for, for next week. Um, but I mean, in all seriousness, um, I loved... The first two parts of your series on on the secret life of ESG ratings. <laughs> that's sort of the, that's the first piece. But but really, I, I um, you did a lot of legwork in understanding what goes into the the rating systems of the top five, the, the main the main five. And I'll I'll let you go through them in a moment. But um, there's there's really five that that our listeners are are primarily concerned with. Although there's probably hundreds of others as well. Um, but I love what you've done with this because you're really just diving deep. Uh, and the first part focuses on, and let, yeah, let's take them together. Like, let's take them one at a time here. Um, what, what, why they exist and um, what goes into, uh, what goes into the, the development of them. So I'll, I'll let you talk and start us off on the first one and we can dive deeper into that. Sure. Uh, thanks, Heather. I mean, yeah, so I, I looked at the five of the biggest um, uh, ESG ratings firms, uh, ISS, Moody's, MSCI, S&P Global, and Sustainalytics. Um, and there, as you said, there are dozens of others. Uh, it's a, it's quite, a, quite a number, and I've had a number of people write in saying, what about Refinitiv? What about Ecovedis? What about CDP? Um, but these are the ones that, uh, that seem to, I mean, MSCI is the one that, the biggest of the lot. And, um, you know, it, it, as ESG has and the ratings of companies has, has become a, a much bigger deal and is now uh, determining the fate of literally trillions of dollars of, of investment capital and, and even loans and bonds and things like that, it, it was time to look at what these ratings actually are and how they're created. And so, yeah, I, it was, it, you'll, I know you appreciate this. It's so nice to be able to take the time and do some deep dive journalism and long form writing, um, as opposed to these things that you know are quite good that we crank out you know uh, a thousand word you know columns and for the newsletters. And this, but this is of a different beast. And as you said, a three three part series, the last part of which will come uh, next Monday, the sixteenth. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, the, one of the you know big takeaways of this is that ESG ratings don't really focus on the impact that companies are making on people and the planet. They're really about risk, um, plain and simple. It's the risk, the, the market risk, and uh, of of uh, environmental and social and some governance issues, and. And, and so I think that's one basic misunderstanding. And, you know, the ratings agencies kind of perpetuate this. At least some of them do. They talk about, you know, creating a better world through ESG ratings, and it suggests that uh, that this is about impact. And, and um, one of the uh, 
uh, firms talks about um, you know the the women and millennials who are uh, who are you know looking to uh, you know have an impact in the world and I don't think that impact is really about risk so um, there is some you know if not misleading at least um, by omission and lack of clarity how many people don't seem to understand this so I wanted to get into that and. You know what happens to these things, and 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 what do the companies who are rated actually think about the, these firms and their ratings? And you know, um, I don't think I put this in the piece, but somebody said, you know, nobody likes their rating. I mean, a few people do who do really, really well. There's a small number that are always get high ratings, and you know, they're they're fat and happy, I guess. But but most most companies have some issues, and one of the problems is that it's inordinately hard to to first of all understand even though they the the ratings firms tout their transparency that we publish our methodologies anybody can get it in fact i linked to all five of them uh but it's also um it turns out that not everybody really understands that just because you publish it doesn't mean it's clear and so a lot of the companies really don't understand why their ratings are the way they are and sometimes they find misinformation and it find it very difficult to get anyone's attention there now somebody told me it's you know i wish there is it's not like there's a front doorbell that you can ring and someone will answer it's usually just a uh an email box and you put it in and it goes into the void and maybe you'll get a response and it can take up to 18 months to even get things corrected so lots and lots of issues here and uh, lots of lots of verbiage in this piece but uh, in both of these pieces but that was sort of just to set the stage of what are we talking about when we're talking about ESG ratings? Who are these firms and, and, and what's going on? So actually, I have a, a couple of follow-up questions for you because I'm curious about those emails you got. You know, I, I, I know Ecovatus and I've heard of the other organization that you mentioned. Um, what was the, I mean, I, and I think they, in my mind, they handle sort of very different things. Um, I know Ecovatus is very focused on supplier ratings, right, for large corporations to figure out, you know, how their suppliers are doing. Although, I mean, that's a very relevant, especially right now, that is extremely relevant information. Scope three, yeah. Yep, you got it. Um, I'm just curious uh, how you think, like, was there any indication that the firms that you interviewed think these should evolve? Like, were they thinking about how to change, you know, how they could become better or more responsive as an example? I mean, I've heard that complaint as well, like, Oh my God, it's wrong, and people are making investment decisions on this. How do I fix it? You know, like that's a big problem. Well, I mean, the firms will all say we're continually improving our methodology, and we're trying to be more uh, responsive to companies. And 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 I'm sure some of them are. Maybe they all are to some extent, but it's a matter of degree. I think, you know, uh, what part three of this series that will come out Monday, as I said, I think we're going to get into the question of, well, it's, it asks the question, do we really need these things? Um, but I, I think, you know, the question is, are these really serving a purpose? Are we look, spending too much time looking at data points and not at systems change? I mean, I'll say it again, you know, we're looking at the individual data points and, but, but, and, and wishing we, you know, companies now wishing that they had a better rating. And that's important to do because, uh, as I said, you know, could be millions or billions of dollars are hinging on that rating. But, you know, are we spending too much time looking at that and not actually making the kinds of changes we need in the world at the scale, scope and speed we need? And so, you know, a lot of this stuff is is kind of, you know, uh, arguably a distraction. And we'll talk about that with another story that we're going to get to in, in a few minutes 
um, these ratings uh, may... I mean, the, the other part of this is that nobody really takes a rating and looks at it and says, okay, I'm going to invest in that company. I mean, maybe some people do, and there are maybe some funds that primarily look at, say, MSCI or S&P, and, and they have something that uh, a fund that whose who's, uh, portfolio companies are screened based on, on one of those uh, rating systems. But usually most investors, certainly the big institutional ones, first of all, look at multiple ratings, um, and, and that's for reasons we'll get into that they don't always agree. But also they, they, they bring in their own research and they, do, they have conversations with directly engaging with the companies. And so these things aren't necessarily gospel or generally aren't. And so the question is, are we spending way too much time looking at these things and worrying about them and not doing the work? Yeah, that that is an absolutely completely valid point. I totally agree with that. Um, I, I actually, I'm going to point people to the second part of this, how ESG ratings are built, where you get really into how they do that data. I love it, data harvesting um, <laughs> uh, and how they they determine what the materiality is of, of the you know, what each company should be looked at on, you know, what, what factors should be considered. And then finally, when they get to scoring, I think, so this is a, this is a great story that demystifies how each of these things is put together. I think the thing that like really, um, I don't know if it shocked me, but I was, I, I, for, I didn't realize the degree to which it happened, but the whole, um, process of how these companies fill in the the holes um this sort of the gaps and how they bake basically educated guesses about you know like when when a company doesn't disclose something or when a company won't provide the information like you you're asked for information you won't provide it what the companies what these ratings firms do to fill in the holes is quite interesting um which does kind of raise the question of what should be disclosed and what shouldn't be disclosed, um, and where where you where you draw the line on 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 that in the rating. Like, what is what is where should you draw the line? But anyway, this I love this sort of concept of the <laughs> I don't the black box. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think that's an, another important point. Thing that thing that I'm sure most people don't talk about. Don't know because the ratings firms don't really talk about it. You know, first of all, it's important to understand that when you rate a company, you're um, looking at hundreds, uh, in fact, as many as 700 different data points about that company. I mean, it's a ton of information. And uh, not every company has that information at their fingertips or even, you know, even digging deep. They don't may not have it. And they probably don't have every single, even if they had it, every single data point, it's probably not in the form or kind of metric that the rating company uses to normalize things. So the ratings companies use something called imputation. They, they impute uh, the data that, that, as you said, educated guesses, although as I said, they're very sophisticated ones involving statistical regression models, input-output calculations, stuff like that. Um, and as much as uh, I saw some statistics that said up to 70%, um, and some, some said it's closer to half, of all the data they use to create their ratings is imputed, not actual verifiable information. And, you know, the, the, the ratings firms will, will swear by their, their their sophistication, and they'll, you know, they, they check... Uh, um, 
the imputation or the imputed data against real world stuff when they can and, and find, you know, they're always improving their models to do that. So I'm not saying they're, you know, as we say, wild ass guesses, but, but they are, um, it's not real data. So that's another piece of this that I think is really important. And, and there is benefits to that because what, what happens is that the, uh, I mean, at least for the credit rater, the rating agencies, they will show this imputed data to the company uh, in question and say, this is what we, we know about your company. Uh, tell us if we're wrong. Some companies still won't even respond. There are a number of companies that don't respond at all to their, the ratings agencies because it's not like credit ratings where you kind of have to have one, a Dunn-Bradstreet or uh, you know, an, an S&P or Moody's rating. Um, this is a case where it's totally voluntary. And so... Uh, you know, they use it as a way to get into the company and, and try to get them to respond. But it's still, you know, at the end of the day, kind of equal parts art and science. Sounds a lot like journalism. <laughs> yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I mean, by, uh, you know, the process, you know, I've done that many times you, where you have a company that won't refuses to talk to you and you have this information and you, you do go back and try to check it with the company. Um but it, I don't know, but I actually wonder, like, is the data that you see about a company that they haven't disclosed where, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't know, I think you used an adjective that I would have probably object to, real data. Like, that stuff is real. It's just not provided by the company. So therefore, it's not necessarily as controlled. So like, is that data actually maybe even potentially more relevant because it's not filtered in some way? <laughs> Um, you know, where it's not, it doesn't have that marketing spin or, you know, that's sort of, so like, I wonder about that. But again, I, I think the, the, the process of taking that back to a company and actually having a dialogue about it is super important. I love that, like the engagement or at least the attempted engagement. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just uh, in awe of all the work that goes on it, to, to your point before about like we spend so much time on this wouldn't it be nicer to spend the time on actually doing the things that you want them to do better <laughs> like I, oh well, my goodness well, well let's roll over to uh, the third story i want to talk about here this is uh, something that, that grant harrison our uh, director and senior analyst for sustainable finance and esg i think the man with the longest title in green business <laughs> uh, uh in his uh a weekly newsletter called Green Friend Weekly, and and on the money column that he that he writes, uh, has been doing a, a regular series of Green Fin interviews, uh, and this one uh, that he had this week is with uh, Tariq Fancy, who's the former chief investment officer at BlackRock and Financial Times editor at large, Jillian Tett. Um, he talked to each of them individually and asked them the same questions. And, and um, you know, they get into some of these same issues that, um, you know, a, a lot of, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, proxy voting and the, and the role of market forces. And, and, you know, are we, are we spending a lot of time, you know, talking about incremental change and, and, and measuring the wrong things without necessarily doing the right things? Um, and it's a really hard-hitting, I think, interview in the sense of, of these uh, two individuals uh, really, you know, hold uh, bar no holds here, I guess, in talking about uh, some of the big challenges that we face uh, in the ESG and, and sustainable finance worlds. Uh, what would you take away from this, Heather? So, yeah, I, I, I read this with great interest. They, I think it's worth noting that um, he interviewed, like, 
he put the questions to each of these individuals separately, like not they weren't in the same room at the same time. He, he just each asked each of them the same questions. Um, and it was interesting to see where their, their answers intersected and where they didn't. Um, but I just, I, um, I really loved one of the things that um, Tarek Fancy, is it Tarek? Is that his, how is Tariq. his first name? Tariq? Yeah. Uh, he, one of his responses, and I'm just going to read a, a portion of it because it, it really just struck me. Um, we must always be careful not to confuse individual a- action with large scale systemic reforms. Great. There's no question that shareholder activism can help by creating incremental changes that would have not otherwise occurred. It's a bit like me deciding to wear a mask during the pandemic and thus doing my part to follow expert warnings to flatten the curve of a systemic crisis that threatens us. So he goes on to talk about like how, you know, it's just you know, sort of the give and take of the free markets. Like we, we, we love to say that the free market is going to correct this but it's not going to that we need to have this this regulation in there somehow to ins- to inspire the systemic change um that the business leaders don't you know they're not going to necessarily listen to this you know they're not necessarily focused on society's challenges right they're going to respond to you know dare i say it, the compliance um and the regulations so i don't know i mean it's just I, I guess I was surprised, like that that they they both seem to be really in favor of of more action than we we're seeing. But I don't know. I mean, I you're you're deeper in this than I I am. I just kind of where did you? What was your main takeaway? Well, there are a few, but one of them was uh, Tariq Fancy's uh, saying that um, you know we need the kind of rapid systemic changes that only elected governments can implement. Um, as opposed to just leaving it to market forces. Um, and so it, this is in reference to talking about the role of proxy voting. This is the voting that uh, that the big institutional investors, uh, as well as many small ones do, who are not in the room at the uh, at these annual meetings. They're voting by proxy, uh, uh, millions in some cases of shares. Um, and the, the, the challenge uh, for a lot of people is that the big institutional investors that you know, like BlackRock and, and others, State Street and others, that's, that have uh, significant climate commitments um, actually aren't voting those commitments as effectively because, again, they're looking at for the interest of their, of their uh, customers, their shareholders uh, and portfolio uh, managers that, uh, that or asset owners. That is their job, and so they have to try and balance that. And and so by leaving it to uh, simply to um, the market forces, we're not going to get there. And so we need, as we saw in the pandemic, government stepping in and and requiring certain kinds of things or pushing the uh, vaccines forward. Um, and and that's what he's suggesting here. So I thought, you know, I mean, he says, let's be clear, I'm a capitalist, I'm a former investment banker, and I'm a strong believer in fair, robust competition, brings out the best in human ingenuity. But he said he doesn't believe that in the free markets, since there is really no such thing. And I have to agree with him there that, you know, somebody said, um, capitalism is the best of all possible systems, we should try it sometime. Uh, and, you know, so, so there's a lot of market failures here that they point to. And I think that's... Um, Interesting. There is one other thing I want to point out uh, before I shut up here. <laughs> one of the questions that, that Grant asked is, he, he said, you're sitting at the table with the heads of ESG investing for the five largest global asset managers. You've got 10 minutes uninterrupted. What do you tell them? And I like what, what Jillian Tett from Financial Times said. She said, don't focus too much on aggregate ESG scores. 
this is to sort of the point we were making earlier. She said, break them down into constituent parts. Re recognize that ESG is all about trade-offs and tell investors honestly what trade-offs you're making and why. I really like that because it, it, it does bring a, a new level of transparency, not just saying, here's our numbers and we'll be transparent, but actually talking a little bit more about the trade-offs and, and the, the, the hard stuff that companies need to do. I don't think there's enough of that. And I like that she called that out. I like that too. I, I do remember that part of it. I, I also, there was something, um, you know, to, to, to back to the so, sort of the comparison between COVID and, and what's going on right now. Um, Tariq was talking about like the fact that we're in a crisis and that you really, especially in a crisis, you need the, the strong, um, decisive government, I don't know if intervention is the right word, but action, let's just say. I also love the comment, um, like the, the sort of reference to, um, you know, the need to be disclosing political donations because, you know, we need to understand where the where these companies that have are saying these one things, you know, saying this one thing, but then fighting shareholders resolutions that demand they disclose political spending because we know, you know, like, the whole citizen tonight. I mean, we know this money is going to support things that they are saying that they don't support. So I love that he called for that kind of disclosure. I think that so many, and we've talked about this for years, but so many things have come to point back to that um, in the last few months, like this, this whole issue of where is your political influence going? And we, as we can see right now, uh, we, we won't, we won't get into the whole Supreme Court issue right now on, on other things, but I mean, we're we're hitting this this point of ser serious crisis in, in the United States with respect to the role that businesses play yeah. in the democracy. Well, one of the really interesting parts of that, and just to put a maybe an ending to this, is that in a world where everything is political, business is now becoming political. Um, and that's new. Business tended to stay out of the fray. It was above the fray. And sure, there was always some controversial companies uh, uh, out there. But now all of a sudden, you know, we look at Disney in Florida, um, you know, business is political. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more. We got, we've got um, a number of Republican uh, attorneys general uh, in the United States, in, in red states, Republican states uh, that are trying to thwart the effort that's going to require um, companies to do certain kinds of disclosure around uh, climate and, and other issues. Um, and so all of a sudden that's becoming uh, a political issue. We're going to be seeing a lot more politics in business. Not sure it's a good thing, but it's what we got. Millions of dollars of venture money flow into climate tech startups. But here is the stark reality. Venture capital alone can't fund all the solutions we'll need to hold global temperature increases to under two degrees Celsius. We need to finance far more entrepreneurs, especially those who don't have the connections or collateral to play in the VC world. Enduring Planet hopes to level that playing field. The firm was founded by former Meta Energy Equity lead Dimitri Gersonson, and Aaron Davis, who co-founded clean energy lending firm SEMA. Enduring Planet is pioneering Enduring Planet is pioneering a non-form 
Enduring Planet is pioneering a new form of non-dilutive debt financing for climate tech startups. Joining me to chat about the firm is Dimitri Gersonson. Hey, Dimitri, nice to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me about the inspiration for Enduring Planet. What, where did this come from? Where did this idea come from? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's, it's built on over a decade of working in this space and seeing the challenges that entrepreneurs face in raising capital to deploy and sort of deploy climate solutions, innovate in climate. I've been a, an investor in folks who deploy debt capital. I've invested in startups. I've helped entrepreneurs raise money in this space. My co-founder raised almost $200 million to invest uh, in clean tech founders all over the world. And, you know, the, the unfortunate reality is that there's not enough money moving to the space. The money that is available isn't a perfect tool for all use cases. Um, mm. Underrepresented founders are generally overlooked by the sort of status quo of money. Uh, and I think the one piece that a lot of people don't talk about is there's this large pool of institutional capital that's looking to participate in climate that wants a fixed income allocation. So they want to work in debt, but those options just aren't there. And so there's mm -hmm. money sitting on the sidelines that could be put to work, but isn't today. Yeah. I want to know more about the platform in a moment, but I actually first want to ask you, what, what is your thesis about underrepresented? How do you, how do you uh, use that adjective? Like who are you talking about? I mean, in the simplest terms, it's pretty much anyone who doesn't look like me. Um, but I, I and think you look that like no one can I'm see white, you. I'm a white guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm, I'm, mm -hmm. a, I'm a privileged white guy. And, you know, I think if you look at the statistics, uh, women receive a trickle of funding compared to mm -hmm. their distribution as entrepreneurs in like mm -hmm. the overall business community, uh, entrepreneurs of color. Uh, I mean, it's, I think black founders got less than 1% of venture capital. Um, but there's a lot of underrepresented groups. There's folks with disabilities. There are folks that are non-gender conforming. Like you pick, uh, we would love to support them. Okay, cool. So now I, I do want to get into the mechanics of this. So how does the, the platform work? Help, help me understand. Yeah, yeah great question. So uh, maybe we'll talk about it from a founder's perspective. Mm -hmm. So they come onto our website. We have a a lot of information about our product upfront. So we share our term sheet publicly in advance so people can understand what they're actually applying for. There's no surprises. There's a handy calculator where people can estimate how much funding they could raise before they apply. And then the application process itself is pretty straightforward. There's, I think, five or six sections. It takes about 10 minutes to apply. And as part of that, entrepreneurs can connect their financials to our backend through an API. Uh, so they can connect their banking, payment processing, and accounting data. And what that allows us to do is uh, very quickly uh, sort of conduct the, the preliminary underwriting. So we can then issue a term sheet typically within a week. Uh, that's a it's a non-binding funding agreement. And then if the startup signs or if the small business signs, then we proceed with deeper diligence. We conduct sort of KYC, AML, um, anti-money laundering, know your customer checks. We look at uh, kind of a deeper dive into their financials. And then generally we can fund in about a month. And our funding is a, it's called, it's a revenue-based financing product. So we provide cash to a startup or a business and they give us a portion of their top line revenue for a fixed term. So it's a portion mm -hmm. of their gross cash receipts. 
that's all done through uh, an, a semi-automated ACH debit. So basically every month we run a tally of all their cash receipts and then we draw our portion and that's it. There's no collateral, there's no personal guarantees, there's no liens on IP or any kind of complex covenants. There's no dilution, no warrants, very simple, very clean. How does how the funding get calculated? Like, is there a is there a cap on how much you could get through the platform? You know, what's the yeah? How great does question. that work? So today, because we're still very early, we uh, limit our exposure to any individual borrower at five hundred thousand dollars, and uh, but that cap will lift pretty dramatically um, towards the end of the year. So why is this so unique? So I think in the climate space, we're the only lender of this kind. There are revenue-based financiers in other spaces. So it's a, it's a model that has, been, has become more prominent in e-commerce and for uh, SaaS-based businesses, software service companies. Although often in the SaaS space, it's a slightly different take. It's a product called factoring where you kind of pre-sell your future contracts. Uh, but there have been revenue-based financiers operating in the U.S. for quite some time. And, and actually, the, like, the model in and of itself, like the essence of it, is as old as any investment. Like mm -hmm. joint ventures are effectively revenue-based financing. You know, private equity, minority deals are kind of revenue-based financing. Like it, it's just a, you know, for, for us, our perspective is like money should be structured to do the work that's necessary. And so we thought this was a great instrument for this need. What are the downsides? So revenue-based financing, because it's often unsecured, it's more expensive than secured debt. So if you're able to provide collateral personal guarantee, you'll get cheaper capital. Um, it also is maybe more complicated in some ways to account for uh, because of how like accounting and taxation rules work for revenue-based mm -hmm. financing. Although we provide a memo to any founder that we work with from our accounting partners that helps them navigate that process. I think the maybe the last piece is if you do really, really well, then your capital becomes more expensive because it's a percentage of revenue. Uh, now, I, we have a few sort of protective measures in our product to uh, sort of cap how much we get out of the transaction. So there's easy buyout provisions for founders to be able to sort of exit if they think it's getting too rich. Um, there's also a kind of our rev share has a step down if they've repaid principal. So there's a few mechanisms for retaining founder upside. But I would say those are the primary sort of negatives. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the first two ventures that you're backing. I think that was the, the number that I've seen. Maybe there's more now by, by the time we're talking. Maybe there'll be more by the time this airs, but tell yeah. me about the first two. Sure. So the first company is a, a group called New Sun Road out of California. They develop microgrid control and management hardware and software. They work all over the world. I think they're in 20 countries, uh, ranging from sort of decentralized renewable energy power systems for communities to telecommunications. Uh, they span the gamut of what we would call like frontier power systems. And uh, they've, I've actually worked with this company quite a bit in, in the past, uh, in my days at Facebook. Uh, I've known one of the founders for a very long time. And it's a really exceptional business and they have been growing. I mean, it's just tremendous, um, super cool. Mm -hmm. uh, also, they meet a lot of our other 
uh, really important criteria. So it's a BIPOC founder, it's a very diverse team, they serve marginalized communities, they like tick every box. Uh, and then the second company is a group called Aquaoso. They're based in Colorado. And what they do is they provide uh, analytics around climate risk to uh, primarily agricultural lenders. And so they help uh, farm banks and other groups to provide farmers very necessary capital. And they help them understand water risk, heat risk, uh, sort of geospatial data around um, climate. And they work with you know, most of the folks who benefit from this product are farmers mm -hmm. who are often really underserved when it comes to credit. Um, so we're very excited about, about both and we have many more to come. Good. Yeah, indeed. You plan to lend 5 million over the next year. So what sorts of climate tech entrepreneurs might be eligible? We heard that you want to really tick the box on the underrepresented, but, uh, underrepresented, but what about the actual categories? Any particular ones that are of interest? So we're really open when it comes to climate. Uh, if the company is helping to reduce emissions, pull carbon out of the atmosphere, support adaptation and resilience, it's in scope for us. When it comes to revenue-based financing, there are a few business models that really work well with this product. So any kind of software, recurring software, SaaS is great. Um, small hardware, sometimes coupled with SaaS is also great. It's really hard for us to do revenue-based financing with folks who build like big things that they sell two of a year. Uh, but if you're making controllers or sensors or other widgets, uh, whether you're selling them to consumers or you're selling them to businesses or government, it works really well, I think, with revenue-based financing. We also really like recurring services businesses. And this is where a lot of kind of smaller maybe not venture backable companies can actually really benefit from our funding because they might have recurring contracts that we can then sort of predict and look at their historical growth. Uh, you know, we plan to do probably 20 to 25 transactions out of this, um, mm -hmm. out of this initial pool of 5 million. And then we will scale that up quite a bit. So we're a venture backed fintech company ourselves. And that means that we have to set pretty aggressive goals for capital deployment over the next few years. And I, and I want to go back to, again, to the, the concept of um, underrepresentation. So when, you, when you're evaluating a loan or, or a deal, do you have like specific metrics for gender equity and diversity? Like, is that part of the lending decision, an actual formal part of the lending decision? This is my final question for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. So we have um, we have a credit policy that we adhere to within the company and a risk card where we sort of assign points to a company based on risk. And uh, we have a specific section on diversity and inclusion where we assign points based on whether or not the company meets those criteria. And so those are we look for um, either women founded or BIPOC founded companies. That's one tick box. We look for diversity across the whole team. So do they have, call it above 50% people that might meet some of these diversity criteria that we talked about earlier, or do they serve generally marginalized communities? And so based on those, they'll get different points and those will get factored into our lending decision. Right now, across the portfolio of startups that we're looking at uh, actively, more than half meet our diversity and inclusion criteria, which is like a pretty, we're pretty proud of that. Mm -hmm. Are you going to decline someone that doesn't meet them? No, no. Mm -hmm. We have internal targets for sort of how how 
how far we're going to go. Our first fund has a 50% mm-hmm. DI target, but uh, it's not a hard requirement. So in mm-hmm. the end, you know, if we find transactions that meet our goals, uh, from a lending perspective, we'll do those. And if we see the portfolio starting to skew away from our target, then you know this is where efforts to seek out underrepresented founders become really important. And like most of our outbound outreach that we do today is focused on underrepresented founders in the space. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Heather. It's my pleasure. You just heard from Dimitri Gershenson with Enduring Planet. There is no official history of the circular economy that I know of, but if there was, it would begin in Germany and the United States with the concept of cradle to cradle. But it would really take shape in the UK when Dame Ellen MacArthur created a bandwagon that's just taken off. And as our gaze turns to all things circular, I thought it would be a good time to check in with James Murray, Editor-in-Chief at Business Green over in London. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Doing great. Uh, So... You know, it's there's been a lot going on in this whole thing called Brexit. We've had pandemic, you know, this weird economy. How are things looking circular-wise on your side of the pond? Yeah, I was really struck by your introduction, actually. You sort of saying that the UK has been kind of at the heart of circular thinking with, with obviously the work that Ellen MacArthur and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has done. And, and that's definitely true. There's some really good stuff that's come out of them and... Uh, an organization called RAP that sort of tackles waste in in multiple industries, food, textiles and the like. So there's lots of really good thinking in the UK. But um, I think like many countries, there's still a huge frustration at the failure to translate those best practices into policy. And there's been, you know, real concern in the UK. If you, if you take a sort of one of the most simple metrics for sort of looking at the circular economy, which is just recycling rates, recycling rates in the UK have just been absolutely flatlining for most of the last decade, to be honest. There's been myriad, numerous sort of attempts to kind of boost them and improve recycling capacity, streamline processes, introduce new incentives, introduce new regulations, and just nothing shifting it whatsoever. And there's still this really fragmented approach where every council has different recycling regimes different rules Uh, you've got huge issues with with capacity for recycling with a lot of stuff still being exported overseas uh, into developing countries where it causes environmental problems there in many cases Um, and yeah i i always think of the circular economy as just kind of the, the poor relation in many ways of climate policy where climate policy is obviously massively imperfect and we haven't seen the progress we need but we have seen some progress Whereas the circular economy has just really struggled to break away from these kind of extractive kind of make dispose business models that remain completely embedded. So um, we still have a massive problem on this side of the pond, just as I, I suspect you have over there. We do. And the recycling rates are uh, probably equally abysmal over here. And uh, uh, and, and the, they're particularly bad with, with plastics. And, and it seems in some ways that over here, at least, the uh, circular economy is largely, I mean, it's about a lot of different things, but so much of it is focused on getting rid of plastic waste. Uh, you know, the, the, all these brands that have made commitments to have their packaging either uh, recycled, recyclable, compostable, or reusable. Um, 
is plastic what sort of the killer app, if you will, of the circular economy over there? It's certainly still the most visible part of it. So, you know, some of the successes we have had have been around kind of banning single-use plastics. We, we uh, the UK introduced a bag, a plastic bag levy. Uh, I think it's one of the first sort of jurisdictions to do so, and that has helped drive down kind of plastic bag use. Um, and, you know, there's been all these kind of corporate announcements and various attempts to uh, develop alternative materials uh, and, and, and boost recycling rates of plastic. So I think that's the, the kind of, it's still the thing that grabs the most public attention. It's probably the thing that corporate executives are most concerned about from a risk perspective, that you're going to get hit with negative headlines if you are continuing to produce plastic waste. Um, but I, I suppose the, the more encouraging thing is that we are starting to see thinking that gets beyond that. So uh, the EU has a big new circular economy package that it's con sort of continuing to, to look at. Um, the UK has kind of said that post-Brexit it will continue to adopt much of that type of thinking. And that includes things like eco-design standards that start to design for repairability and, and material reuse. Uh, that, that also includes um, various measures to try and sort of encourage business models that dematerialize and shift to a more service-based approach. So, um, yeah, the plastics is the main thing, but there is, there's other thinking going on. How about the whole idea of re-commerce or being able to, you know, uh, brands that are now starting to take back their old product, particularly with, with fashion and apparel, but also with other kinds of goods? Um, and, and also the refillable uh, and rechargeable, as it's often called, uh, that, that seems to be at, at not taking off here, but at, at least at a low level. It's one of those kinds of things that'll be small, small, small until all of a sudden something kicks in and it just takes off. Uh, at least that's my hopeful view. Uh, how about over there? Um, much the same. So we're seeing lots of trials. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to see reuse stores, um, although many of them have really struggled during the, the economic headwinds of, of recent years. Um, we're seeing a lot of the big brands starting to do it. So IKEA has invested an awful lot in, in trying to sort of create a kind of reuse and repair services um, uh, alongside its kind of retail outlets. Um, and obviously the fashion industry also, we're starting to, you know, kind of there's this startups doing kind of hiring clothes models and, and various other approaches. The, the problem with it is, and where I might, I'm, I'm probably maybe not quite as optimistic as you are, is just there's so little evidence of any of that scaling. And, and when you set it against the continued growth of, I mean, if you take the obvious example of kind of the fast fashion industry, which is just completely exploding, um, with, with so little regard for, for kind of the waste that's produced and, and so little kind of policy movement to try even try and get people to pay for the pollution that's being produced. Um, it's, it really is a huge uphill battle for these, these still relatively niche pilot projects to really take over. Uh, I mean, the one area where there's maybe a little bit more progress is in that reusable side of things. So we are seeing more and more supermarkets introduce kind of reusable aisles um, we're seeing some, um, you know, some interesting, but the coffee cup, reusable coffee cups have become increasingly ubiquitous in many cases. Um, but again, it's still, it's battling against embedded business models that are so well established. I have to say this is a little bit discouraging because we have long over here looked to Europe uh, as the leader, uh, you know, and, and we talk about, well, the circular economy, it's just getting going here, but it's a much bigger deal in Europe. Mm. It sounds like, uh, you know, things are struggling all over. I think there's some truth in that. I'm probably being a little bit UK centric. I mean, there certainly are countries in Europe, um, the Germ Germany and the Nordics 
always um, touted as being very good on this stuff, having much more streamlined recycling services and, and processes, um, having slightly less sort of consumer based um, economies in, in some ways. Um, so, you know, th there are bright spots in there and there is, there is definitely progress that's being made. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I fear that, you know, the, the business models are still so wedded to mass consumption and and sort of extractive models that it's going to take an awful lot to shift that. And, and I actually I mean, I genuinely think sort of delivering a net zero transition will be considerably easier than building a circular economy because, you know, you can see how you could decarbonize a lot of the energy going into these processes and deliver massive emissions reductions and hopefully scale up negative emissions as well to to one day create a kind of ultra low potentially even net zero emission economy but get into a position where you you have a, a fully circular model where the resources are flowing round and round and you don't have to extract anything anymore that that still feels a bit sci-fi in many in many cases well, uh, do you think there's a policy fix here or, or what would the fix be that would sort of give this some uh, rocket fuel? I think, I mean, there's, like anything, there's no one magic tool, but I think the main initial thing is just focus. This this is just not treated as a kind of policy priority. I mean, in most countries, the idea, the waste minister um, or the resources minister is literally one of the lowliest ministerial positions that you have in government. And, um, you know, it's almost a bit of a running joke that, 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 you know, it's the most junior minister in the most junior department in the UK. Um, and yet it's hugely important. And it's actually quite politically important. You know, when, when the bins don't get collected, that's when you have a full blown political crisis. So it's bizarre that it is treated in this way. Um, so I think focus would be one of the first things. I mean, the other thing is just proper kind of polluter pays is, is these where we have seen progress. It has been around eco-design standards saying you cannot produce products that are designed to break and that are designed so that they can't be repaired and are quite frankly a bit rubbish and then on top of that polluter pays so that if you're putting something out there that has a cost for society in the disposal of it you have to pay towards its recycling and its reuse um, and we have seen some success in those schemes the problem is is that then when they are introduced like with electronic waste they're not particularly well enforced um, you're not seeing tracking of where the waste goes uh, and, and you end up with this sort of, you know, this, this huge environmental problem out the back end that, that the companies that produce it still aren't paying nearly enough to resolve. Um, but in principle, those are the two sort of policies most likely to have a, a positive impact. Well, we've all got a lot of work to do uh, everywhere in the world around this, uh, but I uh, was hoping for a little bit more of a positive uh, outlook here, but we'll, we'll leave it with that. James I, I, I mean, just so you don't yeah. get too despondent, Joel, I just think, you know, the innovation that's going on is really exciting. That's another key fix here. Some of the corporate work that's going on on like alternative materials and, um, and, and repairability and reusability, you are seeing some really cool stuff going on there. So, so hopefully that will, over the next decade or so, have a really positive impact. Yeah, I agree. And that's what we're celebrating at Circularity 22 uh, this year. Uh, and uh, we'll continue to push this on, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. James Murray is Editor-in-Chief at Business Green. It's always a pleasure, James. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. network of fast charging infrastructure and we need to build for scale we need to build now that guy is frank grieg 
He's the co-founder of Revel, a Brooklyn-based electric mobility company that aims to help deliver America's largest and most densely packed metropolis, New York City, into the electric vehicle age. Founded in 2018, Revel is best known for its growing battalion of electric rental mopeds, a service model similar to app-based scooter rentals from Lime and Bird. Revel's mopeds can now be seen zipping around Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and Miami, in addition to New York. The startup also launched an electric rideshare service in New York last summer, with 50 Sky Blue Tesla Ys currently operating in Manhattan. At the same time, it opened its first EV charging super hub in Brooklyn's Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. The hub is located at a former manufacturing plant, a huge industrial building whose parking lot is now lined with rows of those Teslas, as well as 25 fast chargers available to the owners of any EV brand 24-7. I sat down with Rieg inside the hub's power room, a stark white space filled with industrial-sized metal power boxes. This is the back of a former Pfizer manufacturing site here in Brooklyn. So they used to make drugs here, chemicals here. Now it's sort of a massive co-working space and has sort of been uh, retrofitted completely. But since it used to be a former manufacturing site at scale, they have 35 megawatts of power here at, at the site connected to the grid. So when we built this charging station, we didn't even have to do any upgrade with Con Edison. We didn't have to wait two years to get power. The power was literally just sitting here. But this particular site is, as Rig puts it, a unicorn. Finding it was a lucky break that's not easy to duplicate. Because you might find the perfect site in the perfect location with a landlord that wants to rent you that site and wants to build a large-scale charging station in whatever lot they have or parking garage, that doesn't mean you can get the power to do it. So that's where the difficulty comes in with EV charging infrastructure at scale because you need the overlay of the two pieces. You need the real estate. You need that landlord willing to rent you uh, the right type of property at the right price point to make business sense. Then you also need to make sure that there's power on the grid to supply that site. We've got some serious constraints here. These constraints on charging infrastructure help explain why New York City seriously lags other U.S. metropolitan areas in EV adoption. Fully electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles made up only 3.4% of NYC's new passenger vehicle sales last year, far behind San Francisco with 22% and both Los Angeles and Seattle with nearly 12%. That's according to Atlas Public Policy, a research group based in Washington, D.C. New York even lags the national average of 4.4%. The city is working on expanding its charging infrastructure. Still, this city of roughly 2 million cars currently has a total of 100 public EV charging points. 86 of those sit on crowded curbs, among the loading docks, the bike racks, and the outdoor dining structures. In short, as any New Yorker who's ever hunger-gamed their way into a parking spot can tell you, if there's one thing our city does not have a lot of, it's space. EV transition only happens when there's a reliable infrastructure network in a city. So if we build two chargers here and two chargers there and two chargers there, it's in my mind, it's kind of meaningless because then you drive to that site with two chargers. One of them is being blocked by a gas vehicle and the other one, the plug doesn't work. That's not reliable. We need a dense network of fast charging infrastructure and we need it built for scale. We need it built now. So we're building multiple sites just like this one throughout the city and other neighborhoods. 
Because for me, that's what's going to actually turn the needle a bit and get folks in all the neighborhoods that we build these sites in to make that decision to say, hey, let me get an EV as my next vehicle. Um, You've got other sites. We have other sites in the pipeline. Can you Uh, tell me where? Can't announce anything just yet, but just know there is a bunch more in the pipeline. We did not build this one site to then just sit in our hands after this one site. While Revel Superhub is open to the general public, the startup isn't an EV charging company. They don't build the chargers themselves. A company called Tritium does that. And Revel isn't building this infrastructure for the sole purpose of serving casual EV drivers. The company needs chargers for its electric rideshare service, which it aims to expand across the city. We started the service last summer with 50 Tesla Ys. You had to start and end your trip in Manhattan below 42nd Street. Over the last six months, we've expanded that now to 96th Street and South, and we will have future announcements in the next couple of uh, months. The service may have kicked off in Manhattan, but as far as the charging hubs go, another thing Revel considers is convenience for its rideshare drivers. So it's looking for locations in areas of the city where a lot of rideshare drivers tend to live. Outer borough neighborhoods in Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. By the way, unlike other rideshare companies, Revel's drivers are full-fledged W-2 employees with benefits. They're not contractors. For me, it was just, I don't know, maybe it was the way I was raised, grew up. I I just felt like this just makes a lot more sense. Get somebody bought into your company, make sure they care about the company. I don't think you're going to really get that if they're a quote-unquote gig worker. Reed grew up in a middle-class household on Staten Island, the youngest of four children. His dad's an auto mechanic who opened his own shop. Mom's a social worker with the New York Board of Education. Despite being a borough of NYC, Staten Island is different. It's more rural, more open spaces, and Reed grew up connecting to nature in a way that many city kids don't get the chance to, fishing at the beach and camping in the woods. I was probably the only third, fourth, fifth grader that had a massive garden in the backyard uh, in Staten Island that they took care of and it was not their parents. (laughs) What did you grow? Uh, All sorts of stuff. Uh, Peppers, tomatoes, herbs, lettuces, all sorts of stuff. After majoring in environmental science in college, he took something of a detour and became a chef, working in fancy New York establishments like the Gramercy Tavern and Cafe Blue. After about five years, he decided to go back to school. He got a master's in public policy and ended up working in government for a while at the World Trade Center Redevelopment Office for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. He then spent three and a half years in the private sector, doing energy research for hedge funds and private equity firms, which is where he met Revel co-founder Paul Suey. The idea for the moped rental business struck in 2017. I was on vacation in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I had some sort of light bulb moment down there. Buenos Aires is a Vespa town. That is how you get around that city. And I don't know what light bulb went off in my head, but I just kept thinking, this is the perfect vehicle to get around a city like New York. Why is this vehicle type not in a city like New York? Why don't I do that? Likewise, the electric rideshare side of the business was born not because Rieg was the first person to think about electric rideshare, but because no one else was doing it. And here's another way the startup benefits from its labor policy. One of the electrification challenges for companies like Uber and Lyft is that they can't dictate what gig workers drive. Both companies have made commitments and taken some steps towards helping their drivers transition to EVs, but not a whole lot has happened to date. They've had large electrification teams for years, 
And what have they done? There's no EVs from the incumbents. There's no charging infrastructure from the incumbents. Like nothing is getting done. There's just a lot of talk about 2030 and what they're going to do in the future. And if you think about the industry, that makes sense because at the top, you have folks that are just a tech platform and they match supply and demand. Then you have folks in the middle, and there's a lot of them in a city like New York that are the fleet manager folks. A lot of the drivers, you get into a Toyota Camry from one of the incumbents here in New York City, the majority of the time, they don't own that vehicle. They rent it from a fleet manager in the outer boroughs. They have no concept of the brand or the tech, and they have, they're not building any infrastructure. They're just kind of in the middle. And then you have charging companies, right? I would say some of them may be competitors to Revel in some way, right? But they just build chargers. They operate chargers, and they have no other touch point to the rest of the business. So here, here we are sitting here in 2022. Nothing's happened on electrification and ride share in a city like New York, because how can it? Nobody's bringing these things together. And the only way to bring it together is you got to roll up your sleeves. you got to build infrastructure. You got to run mobility services, in this case, rideshare off that infrastructure. So you're bringing demand to your supply and you got to control the brand and the tech or else you're not going to have the valuation you need as a company. You're not going to be able to grow as you need. You can't give that up. So the only way to do this is to actually go all in, roll up your sleeves and do it or else you will just be somebody talking about 2030. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Frank Grieg and the folks at Rebel. This segment was produced from our much longer conversation at the startup's EV charging super hub. If you'd like to learn more, there's a Q&A up on the Green Biz website as we speak. The music for this segment is by Mr. Smith. I'm CJ Klaus. See you next time. Before I let you go, I would be remiss if we didn't plug uh, upcoming webcasts on Monday, May 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific called Where Does ESG Go From Here? Uh, we're going to talk with the aforementioned uh, Grant Harrison, along with Rich Madison, the president of S&P Global Sustainable One, and Allison Bins, the head of ESG and sustainable investing strategy at a firm called Angelo Gordon. Hope you'll tune into that. Just go to greenbiz.com webcasts, and you'll find more about that. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're on the site, please check out our free weekly newsletters. We've got seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and tips. So hit us up, please, at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week from Atlanta, Georgia and Circularity 22 with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. Bye.